Welcome back to another edition of On the Record, the Daily Iowans weekly news podcast, where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week. I'm your host, Eleanor Hildebrandt, and I'm with our producers, Meg Doster and Colin Gee. On this week's episode, we have three special guests. We will be chatting with Daily Iowan politics editor Natalie Dunlap and news reporter Anthony Neary. I will also be switching sides of the mic to talk to Colin about my long-form stories celebrating the University of Iowa's 175th anniversary. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, February 25th edition of On the Record. In case you missed anything from last week, the DI's top headlines can be found on our website. This week, the DI reported on the namesake of the University of Iowa's College of Business, Henry B. Tippy, passing away on Sunday. Tippy became a major benefactor of the UI after contributing $30 million to help support students and faculty in the College of Business. He was 95. The State Board of Regents held a meeting Wednesday where it reported fall 2021 graduation rates were up by 2% and retention rates were down by 1%. And the University of Iowa's hospitals and clinics expect to continue exceeding their budget because of staff reassignments and compensation to accommodate the effects of COVID-19. You can read all of these stories and more in the Daily Iowans print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. Next, we have politics editor Natalie Dunlap here to talk about her story on how the Iowa legislature is reacting to the conclusion of the Iowa COVID-19 proclamation. Welcome, Natalie. We are so excited to have you. It's been a little while since we've had you on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about the COVID-19 proclamation and what's going on with it right now? The COVID-19 health proclamation was in state in Iowa for about two years, a little less than two years. And then Governor Kim Reynolds issued the last extension in early February, and that extension has since expired. And her reasoning for that was basically, we've been living with this for so long, it's time to stop treating it as an emergency and more as just a fact of life, like other infections such as the flu. Yeah. And so how are people reacting to the conclusion of this proclamation, both from a health side and then also from the legislative aspects of this? From the health side, I talked to a couple of people in public health, including Sam Jarvis, who works in public health in Johnson County. And they told me that they felt it was a bit premature and that we weren't quite at the level of the pandemic being something resembling the flu. And it also might be sending some mixed messaging because it is still an emergency in a sense and saying that maybe it's not a public health proclamation level emergency might be sending some mixed messages because there are still mitigations that people should be taking and precautions and things that they should be aware of and they can't just forget that it exists. And then on the legislative side, some Democrats kind of echoed those thoughts of saying it's not quite over yet and that we shouldn't be forgetting about it and having people let their guard down. Republicans such as the state government committee chair, Representative Bobby Kaufman, said that is an example of Governor Reynolds' continued common sense leadership and that people are ready to get back to normal and stop being in emergency mode at all times. And you mentioned some specific pieces of legislation in your story on this topic within the Iowa House and Senate that are currently going through the legislative process. So where are those bills right now in the process of becoming a law? Yeah, so the biggest bill that I mentioned is House Study Bill 647, which has um, passed their state government committee and will soon go on to the, the full House. But Representative Bobby Kaufman said he felt this was one of the biggest and most impactful bills in the legislature related to COVID-19. And it's also been referred to as the Medical Freedom Bill because it states that businesses, educational institutions, government entities cannot ask about medical treatment such as a vaccination or require someone to share proof of a vaccination. And it has a bunch of examples of how cases we're inquiring about that would be illegal under this law. So example would be you can't give someone a, a raise or 
or a bonus based on their vaccination status because that requires someone to to share that. So you can give that as kind of an incentive is one of the examples. And another one is not denying someone employment on basis of their vaccine status. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Natalie. We hope to have you back sometime soon. Next, we have news reporter Anthony Neary, who wrote a story on expanding palliative care education to programs beyond the College of Pharmacy at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Anthony. We're excited to have you on the podcast as a guest again today. How has your week been going so far? Oh, it's been going pretty good, thanks. Good. And so can you start by just explaining to us and our listeners about what palliative care is? So palliative care helps provide patients with a framework for navigating difficult conversations that arise as a part of their serious illness. So um, it, it it includes hospice, which is palliative care that's given to patients with terminal illnesses. And both of them include also giving patients or fulfilling their spiritual and psychological and psychosocial needs and not just their physical needs. Yeah, so it's a vast, a vast portion of healthcare. And so why is it important to expand this type of care beyond the College of Pharmacy to additional students not in that college? Well, because in Actual hospitals, palliative care practitioners are multi-professional. So there can be chaplains involved, there can be psychologists involved, there can be um, nurses involved, and uh, pharmacists as well. So they want, at, at the University of Iowa, they want their program to emulate the way it actually looks in real hospitals. So they would be having classes, hopefully, if it expands um, with people of other colleges, students in other colleges. Yeah, and what kind of changes will be made to these courses as they expand into other colleges and programs and see different students in them? Well, one of the changes that they're hoping to make, for example, in the um, palliative care certificate is that in the last uh, part of that certificate, students go through a rotational cycle where they pretty much, um, they actually have real experience working with patients at the end of their certificate. So um, in that case, one of the professors of palliative care, Michelle Schmidt, wants to create an option for people in Iowa to do that because most of the uh, opportunities are actually outpatient. Um, she wants these experiential opportunities for student to be, students to be inpatient. So hopefully they'll have uh, more space um, within the College of Pharmacy to have students having their experiential um, part of their, their palliative care certificate. Yeah, for sure. And when exactly will these expansions happen and who will be required to take these courses down the line, if anyone? So there's no uh, exact timeline on it right now, but what they're trying to do at the moment is uh, not only conceptualize this, but they're reaching out hopefully to other departments and um, they're trying to get a bigger staff. So the staff has been increasing. The palliative care professors are are four now, whereas uh, starting in 2015, there was only one. So it's increasing relatively quickly. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Anthony and sharing your story with us. We hope to have you back sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Finally, we have news editor Eleanor Hildebrandt here to discuss her long-term stories celebrating the University of Iowa's 175th anniversary by looking through the history of student protests and how the UI has expanded over years. Welcome, Eleanor. We're excited to have you on the podcast as a guest today. How has your week been? It's been good. Pretty busy, but good. And I'm excited to be here, especially as your first time co-hosting the podcast. Colin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. You know, we're a little tired, but we're getting through the day. How did you come up with the ideas for these stories and how did you gather your information? I first realized it was the 175th anniversary of the university back in November 2021, so about four months ago. 
And from there, I knew who I wanted to talk to in the aspect of archivists and people who are historians around our community because I thought they would have an interesting take, but I wasn't 100% sure where I was going to go. So I reached out to David McCartney, who's an archivist in the UI Special Collections, and he and I started talking a little bit and I asked kind of like what was the biggest takeaways from from the history that you've gone through and he was working on a collection at the time to showcase the 175 years specifically focusing on student life and so when we talked we talked a lot about student protests and so I wanted to make that a focal point of my story and then I later on spoke with Mary Bennett who works at the State Historical Society of Iowa in the Iowa City location and she talked to me a lot about just the way that the university has looked over the years as someone who went to school in the 70s here at the university, she knew a lot about not only what it looked like then, but before in the 1840s and then through history. So I kind of got my final ideas from my sources, which is, I think, one of the best ways to go about having a story, but it's been a long time coming. So, What were some interesting events you learned about for the student protest part of the story? One of the things I was kind of surprised about was going back into World War One and Two. I personally don't know a lot about the university's campus during those times because it was either over 100 years ago or almost 100 years ago in the cases of one and two. And so during World War Two, I didn't know that um, about 30 hours after Pearl Harbor was attacked, a bunch of University of Iowa students packed into McBride Hall, which is still standing today, and were listening to people who had previously been in wars, whether that was faculty or students. They were also listening to people who were leaders on campus, like the student body president. There was also a DI editor who was quoted in a news bulletin back in that time, which was quite interesting to just read about. And then, so that was that was something I didn't really know about. And then the next biggest kind of section was civil rights, obviously, as a movement and the way that that impacted the University of Iowa. There was a lot of fight here to get an African-American studies department, which did eventually happen in uh, 1970. But a few black students had actually occupied the president's office around the time that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in the late 1960s. And so they had, you know, taken that fight straight to the president and Jessup Hall. And I thought that was interesting to not only see photographs of, but to hear about and also Martin Luther King came to campus and spoke in the IMU, which I had no idea about. So that was pretty cool. And then after the civil rights movement, the next biggest set of protests was against the Vietnam War in the late 60s and 70s. I was unaware that the first student to ever burn a draft card on campus was at the University of Iowa. And he burned his card at the IMU, actually, the Iowa Memorial Union, where MLK spoke. And... It was obviously a different time. It was during something called the Soapbox Standoff, which is an event that they used to hold. And so he burned his draft card. He was the second person in the United States to ever do that. So that was something I had no idea about. And then following those protests through, there was a point where university students did end up on the highway here in Iowa City, which is something that was more recently seen in the 2020 protests for Black Lives Matter. And so that was kind of an interesting 1970s to 2020 parallel that I was aware of, but I didn't really get to dive into until this project. Yeah, and that's really interesting. It's pretty amazing how the university has been part of so many historical events. But anyways, are there any fun facts you learned as you gathered information about the expansion of the university? Yeah, so 175 years is a long time to look into. 
I was able to catch just a lot of interesting fun facts that were unaware to me. So I didn't know that the first classes actually, so the University of Iowa was founded in 1847, but the first classes weren't held until 1855 to 1866. That was the first academic year for them. And so the first Hawkeye class was just about 125 students. And now in 2022, we see 28,000 students. That includes undergraduate, graduate, and professional students. And that's about 227 times the amount of original Hawkeyes that there were. So that was something that was a little bit mind-boggling to me. And also between 1840 and then 1983, I had found this historical document about all of the buildings that had been built. Um, and there were like 70 buildings built in that time frame. And some of those buildings either, you know, burned down or or had some structural issues and got knocked down, but they also were building over the same spaces. So the Pentecost that we know now is Old Cap, which has been here the whole time since 1840. And then it's Jessup Hall, McBride Hall, McLean Hall, and Schaefer Hall. And so none of those buildings existed at the beginning. We used to have an old brick campus. And so originally there was South Hall, North Hall, the medical building, and then a handful of other uh, buildings right around where we now have Phillips Hall and just down Iowa Ave um, over by Iowa Book. And so just kind of watching the university change from this tiny school of less than a thousand students to where we are now, where we have dozens, if not hundreds of buildings all over Iowa City and even some expansion in Des Moines and further across the state was really interesting to me. It was also cool. I know we have a different additional story in this edition of the print paper and online about disasters striking the Iowa City area and the University of Iowa, which was also something I didn't know a lot about. Obviously, I knew about the 2008 flood and just the craziness of losing all of those buildings. But there's also a major library fire that started early in the morning one night after the building was struck by lightning and we lost that building that was originally on the Pentecost. Um, in the 1890s, that building, when that happened, we lost a lot of our history. We lost a lot of books. And then there was another building that caught fire, which was South Hall in 1901. During a snowstorm, it caught fire, as did the medical building that was next to it. And in the medical building portion of the fire, we had thousands of books on medicine at that point, and it got burned down to 17 books, which is nothing. But that was quite an interesting story that was written by news reporter Ryan Hansen is his name. Wow, it's just, you know, there's so much history here with the university. How did you determine what would be included in your stories with all the information you gathered? It was not an easy process. <laughs> it was actually very, very hard. When I originally sat down with Mary Bennett from the State Historical Society, I was there for two hours and I learned so much and I went back for an additional two hours just to look at books and to ask her a few additional questions. And so I think I took what really stood out to me because from the get-go, all of my sources were talking about how the University of Iowa was known for protests. It was known for being a space where students could say what they wanted to say, they could challenge authority, and they wouldn't necessarily get in, in, in a lot of trouble, but they could potentially get in some trouble. And I thought that that was interesting because while I've been on campus, I'm a junior now, so just about three years, we've seen a lot of those crucial moments of protest. We saw 2020 with the Black Lives Matter. We saw fall 2021, the Fiji protests. We've seen a few smaller protests like Iowa City High had a march out to protest for reproductive rights recently at the very end of the winter of 2021. 
And then we saw some additional protests around COVID and around online classes, as well as there were some Sudanese community members who protested against a coup in Sudan. So we've just seen a lot in the last 20 some odd years of the 21st century. And so being able to dive back into that was really cool. But I also thought it was important to remind people where we came from. And so the university is gigantic now. (laughs) We have close to 30,000 people on campus at all times who are students. That doesn't even count faculty and staff. And so I wanted to showcase the ability to change because we have no idea where we're going in the next 175 years. We have no idea where we're going in the next 20. So it was fun to dive in and just to get those admission numbers to see those buildings that had been built and to remind the Hawkeye community that we were once a lot smaller. That's some pretty incredible stuff. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Eleanor, and sharing your story with us. We can't wait to hear back again sometime this year. Yeah, thanks for having me as a guest this week. Thanks for listening. Follow The Daily Iowan on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest campus in Iowa City-related news. Tune in next week for another edition of On the Record.